You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Northern Light United Church on February 12, 2019. The theme was, whoops. Co-hosts for the evening were Sarah Hannon and Alita Buss. Live music was performed by Tom Loker. speaker tonight is Ron Schoenbeck. Ron immigrated from Wyoming to Juneau fresh out of college just a few years ago. He's a long retired state employee as is his wonderful wife Nan. They enjoy their cabins, boating, and raising slugs in their garden. We always wondered who did that. Thank you for raising those for all of us. This story takes place at their home on South Lena Beach, the banana belt of Juneau. Should that say banana slug belt of Juneau? Ron, please come to the stage. Well, living out on South Lena, we've got a great bird collection, this wonderful amount of bird's life out there. And so I occasionally, whenever we've got a loaf of bread, or I've got, we've filleted out some salmon carcasses, or I've kind of defrosted the freezer, whatever it might be, I'll occasionally take them down to the beach and feed the birds. And so when you cross the lawn in front of her house, you kind of go down um, six, eight stairs to the first seawall, then you go over a little bit, and there's another short flight of stairs, probably eight or ten down, and then you're down to the beach. And so it's very predictable of the birds that are going to show up. Every time you go down, it's the same situation. Immediately, the seagulls show up, and of course they're very vocal, and the whole neighborhood totally shows up real quick. And they're, they're pretty timid. And then immediately the ravens will come in, and they're the funniest ones, they're really fun. Sometimes if the seagulls don't quite get out of their way fast enough, I've seen them go up and they'll pull the tail feathers on a seagull, and man, it really works good. And then, you know, we've got a lot of big spruce all up and down the beach. And so there's always a number of eagles that sit up in the spruce trees. But the eagles are always, they're pretty cautious. You know, they don't like to get too close to you. So depending on how much food there is, the uh, eagles will launch from one of the trees and they'll do a glide path down and they'll either grab it on the go where they'll stop and feed themselves. But... They'll only do that if I'm kind of like back up, starting up on the stairs there. So one day, Nan and I and our dog, Ruby, we were up on top of the lawn and we were going to go for a walk. And so I had this loaf of old bread. And I told Nan, I said, I'm just going to go down to the beach and, and feed the birds. So I went down there and I had this loaf of bread in my hand and I'd pull out two or three slices of bread and I'd fling them up in the air like this and you know the gulls are there and the, the ravens are showing up and I'd kept feeding them out like this. I was about done with the, the package of bread. 
But unbeknownst to me, there was a bald eagle that had launched itself from one of the trees back behind me. And so as I flung out this bread, this eagle missed the bread, come flying down, grabbed a hold of my hand. And you've heard that, that uh, saying where a bird in the hand is better than, better than two in the bush. Well, that's a bunch of crap. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm, I'm just like, like incredible shock because I've got this eagle attached to my hand. He's wrapped a talon around my finger and pierced into my hand. And so I was like, this is really up, this is very up close and very personal. <laughs> so I'm kind of bent over down on the beach. The, the eagle is spread eagle. He's got his, he's on his back. He's got his wings out like this. He's got his beak is just chattering up a storm. He's got one, one of his uh, legs is up in the air and his talons are trying to grab me. And I've got this, I, got, I just got this horrible thought. I thought, you know, there's something about birds of prey when they lock into dinner, they don't like to let go of that. So I was, I thought, this is, this is kind of scary. So I'm bent, bent over like this and I thought, okay, I, I, and I'm, I'm really screaming because this is really painful the way he's latched into it, you know. And I thought, well, I have to see if I can't pry that talent out of my finger, you know. So I make a couple attempts at it. And this whole thing probably doesn't last maybe more than, I don't know, 30 seconds, maybe a minute that I'm screaming and hollering and cussing at the eagle. And so I don't know whether I was successful pulling out the talon or whether the eagle just let go. But anyhow, as soon as the talon come out, the eagle sat up and I was just like on my adrenaline was really at a high level at this point. Maybe not been the most humane thing, but I was like, I've had enough of this guy. And I, I took and I kicked him with my foot. And then I fell backwards on my butt on the beach. <laughs> so I picked myself up and I go up to the top of the lawn. And Nan, unfortunately, hadn't seen the eagle actually latch on to me, but she was kind of coming down to help and see what I could do, you know. So, so I went up went up to the house and my uh, our daughter-in-law who's a doctor lives down the beach kelly and we called up kelly and says come on down take a look at my hand you know <laughs> so she brings a bunch of stuff down and you know she uh cleans out the blood out of the the finger and flushes out the the area that got pierced and bandages up and so it was, it was actually pretty good it didn't it, i mean the pain wasn't too bad at that point anyhow and so, I don't know, maybe, maybe this ego was trying to give me a message or something. Anyhow, the, it happened to be that it was this finger that he had latched into, you know. I don't know. <laughs> so the eagle sat down on the beach for quite a while. And I thought, this is, this is kind of, I'm just, I'm afraid he might be hurt, you know. So I called up the Junoraptor folks. And I, I told him the story, and they said, he's probably okay, just, just leave him there. You know, if he's there tomorrow, call us. But okay. So the next day, 
Ruby is out on the lawn there, our beagle. And Nan happens to look out the window. And here comes the eagle. And this eagle had apparently maybe spent the night underneath our boat down on the beach. He had walked over the stairs. He had hopped up this flight of stairs. He had come over. He had hopped up the next flight of stairs. And we have never had an eagle on our lawn before, you know. This guy was, he was possessed, I think. So about the time he gets to the top of the stairs, Nan looks out and sees the eagle coming up, and she says, oh, my God, look at this, you know. So she runs out and grabs our dog, Ruby, and brings him inside. Well, this eagle just followed her right up on the porch, and we got glass French doors. I mean, literally, if we had just opened the door, this eagle would have, no doubt, would have walked right into the house. So... So we're sitting there with the eagle on one side of the glass wall, and we're sitting on the other side, looking and taking pictures, you know. So we call up our neighbors, you know. Come on over, you know, got, got an eagle going on here, you know. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty amazing. Anyhow, we finally got enough pictures of them taken of them. But the guy would hop up on top of the hot tub, or he'd hop up on top of the chase lounge, but he'd always come back and look in the window at us. So I called Raptor folks again, and I said, the guy is back. He's really weird. So two women come out, and uh, they distracted him, dropped a sheet over top of him, kind of wrapped their arm around him, kind of careful not to get caught in the talons and stuff, and they toted him off. Well, unfortunately, the guy's life, or gals, I'm not sure which, um, he didn't make it. They shipped him off to the Raptor Rehab in Sitka, and he died a few days later. And this was in January, and apparently the guy was quite old and quite thin. He probably wasn't going to make it through the winter. Maybe, I, hopefully I didn't do anything to him, I don't know, but uh, he didn't quite make it, unfortunately. But to this day, I still go down and I uh, feed the birds. And some people think, well, I'm kind of a slow learner. <laughs> Could be. But every time I feed, I always look over my shoulder. <laughs> All right, our next storyteller is Stephanie Andrew. Stephanie was born and raised in the heart of New York City. She first came to Alaska in 2009, left for a few years, and returned home to Juneau in 2016. Stephanie never drove in New York City and got her driver's license right before moving to Alaska. Less than a year later, she totaled her first car by hitting a moose in the Yukon. Car trouble must run in the family. Please help me welcome Stephanie to the stage. So my family had a car that was affectionately known as Big Blue. And Big Blue was a 1987 Mercury Grand Marquis. And the first time I saw it, I thought it was a limousine. It was so big. It uh, was covered in political bumper stickers and had all sorts of nicks and dings and scratches from uh, a life well lived in the city. Uh, one of my father's favorite activities was to find a parking space that wasn't quite big enough and just nudge the car in front or behind him uh, with that V8 engine to make room for himself. 
Um, it got stolen one night from Yankee Stadium while we were at the game, and then was stripped and riding on a flatbed in the Bronx, and our mechanic, Raphael, <laughs> recognized the political bumper stickers, and <laughs> said, oh, I know that car, and pulled it off the flatbed and put some parts back in it, and we were back on the road. Uh, Big Blue lived a lot of life, but it was finally time to retire and go to that great junkyard in the sky, or the Bronx, as the case may be. Um, and we got a new car, a new used car, and we had only had it maybe a month or so when we took our first family road trip. And we were going to a little island off the tip of Long Island uh, called Shelter Island. And we head out of the city, and it's a couple hours, and all along the way, we stop at some outlet malls, because that's what city folk do. And uh, in addition to your usual fare of you know, purses and shoes and what have you, this outlet mall had a Pepperidge Farm factory outlet. So my little chubby eight-year-old self is very excited to have a giant box of goldfish crackers and mint Milanos. And my dad is very excited about the discount bin that has all these individually packaged, single serving size of croutons. <laughs> and he buys a boatload of them and puts them in the trunk. And so then we head out and get on the ferry. It's a very short ferry ride. And my dad, who's a little bit of a romantic at heart, he says, oh, it's going to be a beautiful sunset. We have to go drop our bags and just go to the beach and watch the sunset. So we do that, um, drop our bags at the house, at our friend's house, and head towards the beach. And there's a ramp down to the beach at the beach access. And I don't think we realize at the time that it's a boat loading ramp. But uh, my dad just starts gunning it down the ramp. And <laughs> then he pulls off about six inches from the break and get out and watch a beautiful sunset. And then it's time to go, and the car's not going anywhere. Uh, it's just digging itself deeper in the sand, and the wheels are spinning. And so then, like any proper dysfunctional family, we all start screaming at each other, <laughs> which didn't really help the situation. But uh, we debate what we should do, if we should involve the neighbors, and you know, maybe they're already involved because we're all screaming at each other. But you know, my dad says, forget it. We're just going to leave it and deal with it in the morning. I don't know if that's the best idea, but okay, you know. So we walk a mile or so back to the house and uh, go to sleep. The next morning, I come, you know, bleary-eyed down the stairs, and my dad's on the phone with someone trying to get a crane to get the car out of the ocean <laughs> because he had already been back down to the beach, and the, he hadn't really factored in the tides in the equation. So the water was up to the windows. And a tow truck had already come and tried to get the car out and uh, failed and got stuck itself. So now he was paging a gentleman in church on Easter Sunday to get the crane to get the car and the tow truck out of the water, which we eventually do and bring it to a garage and then you know, don't quite know what to do. So we pop the trunk and start bailing water out. Uh, and there's all these croutons floating <laughs> in the trunk. And, you know, my dad makes sure to save them all because he's got his priorities straight. <laughs> and the mechanic, unfortunately, informs us that the salt water has corroded all the electrical workings in the car. 
and that the brake lines could go out any minute, so we can't drive it. Uh, the insurance company eventually declares it a total loss, but so uh, we're stuck on this island. Uh, we call a fr our friend whose house it is to drive three hours out and three hours back to come and get us, and we go back to the city, but we don't have a car. So my dad calls up his mechanic, Raphael, and he's like, uh, hey, do you think I could get Big Blue back? Uh, <laughs> I had a little trouble with the new car. Um, and he does. And we put some parts back in it, and we're driving it for another five years or so. <laughs> but, but the best part is the pride and joy which with, with which my father served these croutons for years to come. <laughs> Our next speaker is Paul DeSluver. He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he'd never been before. He left yesterday behind him. You might say he was born again. You might say he found a key in every door. Oh, wait, that's a John Denver song. Sorry. Paul's an actual evil twin. He has a twin brother who accidentally ended up in Juno nearly 45 years ago. For details of how that happened, listen to the December 9th, 2014 Mudroom story on how accidents happen. Um, Paul, join us. So I deliver Meals on Wheels every week, and my route is the uh, Lemon Creek area. And over the years, it's been pretty uneventful and pretty routine. But one beautiful summer day, I was uh, delivering to a client in one of the mobile home parks. So I pulled into the park, pulled up perpendicular to her trailer, and right in front of her stairs, and stopped, picked up the lunch, got out of my car, walked up five stairs to the porch and onto the door. And the, the delivery note on this particular client is knock hard and wait. So I knocked hard and then I prepared to wait. And as I did that, I glanced back over my shoulder towards the front of her home and I saw something that totally confused me. And immediately I realized it wasn't what I saw, but what I didn't see. My car was no longer parked in front of her home. And I thought, oops, no, that's the theme tonight. I actually thought, oh, I didn't put my car in park. I turned, ran to the edge of the porch, leaped to the ground over the five steps, looked to my left, and I see my car about 150 feet away, and it's traveling at about three or four miles an hour. <laughs> and it's on course to slow motion T-bone a Harley motorcycle. <laughs> so like Usain Bolt, <laughs> I started to do a record-breaking sprint, but Unlike Hussein, in my left hand, I'm carrying a paper tray with two pieces of chicken, 
potatoes and gravy and a mixed vegetable. And in my right hand, I'm carrying a paper bag with a carton of milk and a big piece of chocolate cake. I actually caught up to my car. And fortunately, when I had exited the car, I left the door open. So I simply needed to jump laterally into the driver's seat, slam down the brake. With my hand full of bag, I managed to grab the lever and throw it into park. And I looked out and I thought, wow, I am so close to that motorcycle that his handlebar could be a hood ornament on my car. <laughs> and then, disaster averted, I remembered, the poor client. So I jump back out of the car and start racing back to the start line. And I, my hope was to get there before the poor woman got to her door. <laughs> so I round the corner of her trailer, run up the steps, and she's already at the door looking confused. And my sudden appearance startled her even more. So unbeknownst to her, she won that race. And I thought, should I explain to her, you know, what just happened? And then I thought, nah, what's the point? So I just said, oh, good morning. How are you? Beautiful day today. Enjoy your lunch. Okay, see you next Tuesday. And I turned, and I'm walking off the porch and thinking, all's well that ends well. So I get down, bottom of the porch, the stairs, and I look to my left. I see my car, and there's somebody standing next to my car. And as I get closer, I see this somebody is a great, big, burly guy. And he's scowling at me. And as I get even closer, I see he's got one of those do-rag thingies on his head. He's got a t-shirt with a leather vest, a couple chains hanging down off his belt, going into the back pocket attached to who knows what. Big leather boots. And he's still scowling at me. So when I get almost right up to him, he says, hey, pal, is this your rig? I thought, uh-oh, I think I'm about to get my ass kicked. So I said, um, yeah. And he said, well, I'd appreciate it if you didn't park so close to my bike. And I thought, should I tell him to explain what happened? And I thought, nah, what's the point? Anyway, I didn't get a, want to get my ass whipped. So I just said, oh, sorry about that. Jumped in my car, put it in reverse, backed up, steered around his bike. As I'm driving away, I'm looking in my rearview mirror, and I see him still scowling at me. And I'm thinking, all's well that ends well. <laughs> So our last story before the break is Jason Schneider. Jason is a social entrepreneur that moved to Juneau in May 
of last year, having moved here from the shores of Lake Superior, he seems to enjoy small northern towns, despite having grown up in California. He's pretty curious about people and what makes us who we are, especially the, the things we prefer to hide. Perhaps his story alludes to the roots of his curiosity and leaving California. Please welcome Jason. Dad, I'm sorry. Um, it's been six years, so this is my story now. So writing my father's eulogy was one of the most difficult things that, that I had ever done. And certainly the grief was there, but it was because we hadn't talked in three years. We had a very complicated relationship. Uh, he was a larger than life kind of guy um, who really lived the Los Angeles sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle in every way. You know, as, as a kid, I remember eating cereal with Slash from Guns N' Roses, um, skateboarding in Stevie Nicks' empty pool. First time I ever smoked pot was with uh, some of the Allman Brothers band. And, you know, I, it was only times that I would hang out with my dad because I didn't grow up with him. It was when I would spend time there. So we had a complicated relationship. He always said that he never intended to live past 30, and he really lived every day kind of like he meant it. And so when I got a call that there had been an accident, I really wasn't surprised. And he was in a coma um, on life support. I was living in Michigan. He was out in Los Angeles. What I was surprised at is that it was from falling off of a ladder, something so mundane that it didn't make any sense compared to who my dad was supposed to be. So I got the call. I made it out to L.A., even though I hadn't talked to family in years. Uh, got out to L.A. in time to meet with family, make the decision to pull life support, and he passed that night. And I was, I was thankful to be there with him and with family. So the next day, I go to my cousin, who is living with my dad, and uh, I ask if I can get access to the house. Again, because we were kind of on the outs. We weren't really sure if I could get into the house or not. And I'm like, you know, I know my dad better than probably everybody else in the family, and there's probably things in the house that are hidden that I need to get to before the rest of the family finds them. <laughs> I would just like to get rid of them. And, and my cousin's face just drops. And he's like, well, you know, I, I was the one who called 911. Let me tell you about the scene that, that I found. And yes, what I found out was my dad did fall off of a ladder. He was about yay high on a ladder, pulling down a giant roller bag large roller bag out of a loft that happened to be full of adult toys. <laughs> so he, he was in the company of a, um, of a hired companion for the evening. Um, he had, cocaine was involved, Viagra was involved, and he was also on Coumadin, a blood thinner, because of, he had a pacemaker. None of these things should go together, and my, my cousin is just traumatized, and I just let out this huge belly laugh because it's, in so many ways, it's fitting for my father. You know, he wouldn't have wanted to go out in a very mundane sort of way, so I let out a huge laugh. My, my cousin and I finally reconcile. He lets me into the house, and so I find, I find the offending bag, and it is full of toys. And then I find another tote that's almost the same size, also full of toys. 
and then two more packages which uh, contain video and um, and we'll say literary material. Um, <laughs> and I'm looking at all of this thinking, okay, what do I do with this? I can't throw it out. The family's gonna find it. I mean, there's so much of it. You can't just put it in the dumpster. And then the dumpsters that are at all the stores are all either under surveillance or locked. So I go to the internet. Okay, what do you do? Lo and behold, <laughs> right, lo and behold, you can rehome used adult material through Craigslist. And so within two days, there's this IT worker who drives two hours over to meet with me in a parking lot out in the middle of nowhere and go through it piece by piece saying, oh, this will be good for so-and-so. Oh, this, okay, you know, Frank will like this, Serena will like this, and going through every single piece. He takes about 80% of the things. I walk away with about $1,000. Yes, there was actually that much in there. But I'm still, la and he also took all of the, the literature and DVDs, and I, I held about 20% of it still there thinking, what, what do I do? And not in my proudest of moments, I decided I'm gonna leave it right here in the park parking lot. <laughs> drove away. I still, as you all are giggling, I still think about who found it and what that experience may have been like. It, it was a seedy park. It was not like the neighborhood family park. Um, so the next few weeks before the service come about, I'm meeting with all the friends and family that are out there and hearing all sorts of stories about my dad, things that I never heard. Um, some really good, some really bad. A lot of things that really helped me connect with him to try and write that eulogy in a way that does service to all of the, all of the people that he was to all of his friends. And the one thing that everybody wanted to know in those conversations was what was he doing on that ladder? Of which I couldn't say. So the day of the service rolls around and I go to Kinko's to pick up the memorial programs that are, that are written up and you know, emblazoned on the cover is my dad, big guy in a Hawaiian shirt, giving the middle finger to the camera. And it was just apropos for who he is. Uh, and the clerk slides it over and he kind of looks at the proof and says, you know, sorry for your loss, he, he really, he looks like a, an interesting guy. And I just opened up. Let me tell you how interesting. And I got way more than seven minutes to describe all of the details of what happened that I can't get into here. And this was a full Kinko's. There was 20 or so people in there. All the clerks stopped working. <laughs> Everybody in the building stopped to pay attention. And it was dead silent, like the clerk was clearly trapped. And finally, after about 30 seconds of silence, a woman who was probably 20 years older than me pipes up and says, let me tell you about what I had to hide from my mom. And then one of the clerks jumps in, well, let me tell you what I had to hide from my brother. And within 20 minutes, everybody in Kinko's had discussed a story of having to hide their loved one's unmentionables from somebody else. It was the most cathartic Seinfeldian moment I have ever had <laughs> in my life. Um, and so I grab the materials, I run home, and just before the service, after going through all of that, I have to scratch out the eulogy a little bit. And the beginning lines, I, I had to change, and they read, my father, Mick Schneider, passed away at 63 years old from injuries from falling off a ladder. Pops, what the expletive were you doing on that ladder in the first place? I hope whatever it was was going to be really fun.
You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These Oops stories were recorded on February 12th, 2019. To see if you have a story you'd like to share, look up the dates and themes of our upcoming shows on Facebook or at mudrooms.org. leads us to speaker number five tonight. John Greeley is a writer and former journalist who has covered public affairs in Alaska for decades. He most recently co-authored a book about the sinking of the Princess Sophia entitled Disaster on Our Doorstep. He and his wife Marla Berg live in happy retirement in Juneau. John, join us. This story is about journalism, and I should start by giving you a motto that journalists used to try to follow when they're chasing a story. That is, get the story first, but first get it right. And a corollary to that is, if your mother tells you that she loves you, check it out. (laughs) Be skeptical, that's what that means. So it's 1971, probably before many of you were born, but I was newly uh, out of college and working for the Seattle Bureau of the Associated Press. And one of the stories that was big news at then concerned an island in Alaska, Amchitka Island, where the federal government was proposing to detonate the largest nuclear warhead in the nation's history. It was a project that had a code name. It was called Kanakin. And Amchitka is at the far end of the Aleutian chain. It is the third major rock from the end of the Aleutian chain. And if you're, if you're a former governor of Alaska, you could see Russia from there. <laughs> Maybe. But it's really a long ways from anywhere. Kanakin was supposed to be the third nuclear test. There had been two others in the immediate uh, years before then, in the 60s, that had been pretty small. One that uh, was real small and the other was kind of medium size. This was really a big one. And it had people really kind of excited about it and scared because they were afraid. It wasn't too long after the 64 earthquake, so people were still nervous about technology and things in Alaska. But the event was such a drawn out thing that there was all these protests going on all over the place. And there was a group of people that got together in Vancouver, BC and had a conference about this thing. They were called the Don't Make a Wave Committee. And one of the things they decided at that conference was to change their name to the Greenpeace Organization. They got formed out of this test. So 
the Associated Press was covering this thing. There were protests all over the place. There was a lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court. President Nixon finally personally ordered this test to go forward, and it's the day of the test. It's November. There had been a huge storm in Amchitka the night before, so people were, weren't sure what's going to happen. But the AP had a reporter on the island. It's a 40-mile-long island. And the test is happening kind of in the middle of it. And about a mile away from ground zero, there's this hut with about six or eight reporters in it. And they all have phone lines to Anchorage. And the AP reporter has a phone line, and his job is to survive this test and tell people what happened. <laughs> so the bomb goes off. And the, the hut that they're in starts shaking, and he tells the AP reporter in Anchorage, the bomb went off and the, and the building is shaking. And the AP reporter in Anchorage has got one phone in one ear with Amchitka and another phone in the other ear with Seattle. And he says, the bomb went off and the, and the building's shaking. And the AP, AP Bureau in Seattle has a phone here with Anchorage on it and a phone here with New York. New York AP is gonna move this story fast and be send it around the world. And so, the lead is Amchitka Island, Alaska, AP. The US government today detonated the largest nuclear device in the nation's history, shaking buildings in Anchorage, 1,300 miles away. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so this was a big deal. This, I mean, this bomb is huge, five megatons. You know how big a megaton is? It's a million tons of TNT equivalent. So there was five million tons of TNT, the equivalent of that, that was set off 6,000 feet under Amchitka Island. And it did a lot of damage to the island. I mean, it killed about 1,000 sea otters that were you know, just living their lives out there. It killed birds. But Mother Nature doesn't need any help shaking buildings in Anchorage. We know that. And this bomb did not come even close to doing that. So eventually the AP decided that they had the story wrong and sent out a correction. And, you know, it was kind of embarrassing, but it was just a footnote in history. It was not a big story compared to, to the bomb itself. This was all happened 47 years ago, but now we're still living with the aftermath. The island itself was fractured by this uh, explosion. The federal government did a pretty good job of repairing the major damage there, as far as I can tell. I've never been there, so I can't really vouch for this, but everything I've read about it says that they, they did pave over the, the worst of the damage, but there was still leaks and fissures, whole lakes disappeared, rivers and, on the island. What it says is that there is radiation on the island, but generally the Aleutians look like the Shire of the Lord of Rings. There's, it's, they're green, not many trees, beautiful islands, especially in the summertime. So it's the end of the story, except it's not. There is, 
besides the radiation that Greenpeace still goes out and tests and the federal government go out and test and who knows who's right there, there's also the 2,000 people that worked on this project, many of them Alaskans, who have suffered from the radiation. Uh, Congress did provide compensation to them and as well the 600,000 other people who worked in weapons facilities around the country during the Cold War, 40 years long Cold War. So anyway, the other, the last, this is the end, I promise. The other thing that's changed in the 47 years since this happened is that everybody is a journalist now. We have the internet. And so anybody can go out and tell their story. I just caution you to make sure it's the right one. And if your mother tells you she loves you, tell her, I love you too, mom. Okay, so our next speaker is Kate Troll. Kate moved to Juneau from Ketchikan in 1992 in search of less rain. Not only did she find less rain, but a warm, giving community for her and her family. Kate is a columnist, speaker, former elected official, and Red Cross volunteer. Professionally, she was involved with resource management issues, commercial fishing, energy, for over 22 years. Kate is also an author, a wilderness adventurer, and a storyteller. Kate's story tonight ties back to one she told from the bedroom stage for the, for the theme, Sibling Rivals. Please welcome Kate. <clears throat> Okay, so within hours after my mother passed away, my father gathers all six of us troll siblings together to admit that they had to get married because they were pregnant with my brother Tim, the oldest, at the time of their wedding. You know, this was the oops we had long figured out. You know, we could do the math. But my parents, they're Irish Catholics from upstate New York, and they never, ever celebrated their wedding anniversary. There was never a wedding photo anywhere in the house. My mother had four daughters, and she never spoke of marriage relationships to any of us. It was all part of keeping the secret of marriage out of wedlock a secret, a shame that she took to her grave, and a shame that compelled my father to have to speak about it within hours after her passing. So now fast forward 27 years to 2018 in the era of DNA testing. And because of what my daughter found on her 23andMe results, and I always had an unanswered notation on my birth certificate, I decided, hmm, I think I'll do my DNA test and see if I can't find another sibling. So I do that, and I get my results back. And on it, there's this person named Trish that I'm going to call Trish for the purpose of the story. And she shares more DNA with me than my first cousin who's in their database. And I know all my first cousins. So I'm like, oh, this is on to something. So I start messaging this Trish saying, hey, we share a lot of DNA. And I think I have reason to believe I have a half sibling. Please respond. Here's my contact info. No response, no response. And finally, I think, well, you know, Maybe I better add the line, oh, I come from a functional and loving family, you know? And 
Weeks go by, and i still hitting the resend button. And finally, I get a reply back from a person I'll call Linda, who says, Trish is my 12-year-old daughter. <laughs> yeah. Why is she doing the DNA test? I don't know that one. But, um, but however, her paternal grandmother is adopted. And I think you are related because you look alike. In fact, you look exactly alike. You could be twins, explanation point. Wow, this is like, whoa, pretty amazing thing to encounter. And next, I hear from the son of my possible sister. His, I'm going to call him Connor. And he decides he just wants to talk. So I said, yeah. So we get on the phone, and he calls, and uh, he lets me know that uh, his mother did has always defined herself as being adopted. It's always been central to her identity. She's always been curious about her biological family, but never did anything about it. And I quickly ask, well, when was she born? 1949. Well, that's two years before my brother Tim was born, so the math works out. So I begin to tell him a little bit of the family backstory, and, and intrigued, he, he uh, listens and says, well, my mother should be getting her 23andMe results back soon. And just then, I heard my mother's voice all in due time, you know. Don't get ahead of yourself, Kate. Um, and so we agree to just put things on hold and to check back in two to four weeks, and, and, and I do that. And I learned that not only has Connor not, doesn't know anything about his mother's 23andMe test results, but he wants to wait for the right time to bring the topic up. It's a, it's a sensitive topic, and, and I can understand that. So I write a letter for him to give to his uh, mother uh, when the time comes up. Um, and, you know, months go by, and another month goes by, and I I'm not hearing anything, and, you know, I'm, like, trying to be cool. And it's, it's, it's exciting. I might have a possible sister out there, right? So I think to myself, I think, well, you know, maybe she did the Ancestry.com test instead of the other 23andMe thing, so why not do that one? So I take that test, and when I get my results back, you click on the DNA relatives, and there it is in bold font, immediate family, Pat MFL. Now, when you spit in the tube and you want to identify yourself, you can use a name or an abbreviation or, or whatever you want. So I'm thinking, Pat, okay, that could be male or female. Maybe this is a chance for me to, like, communicate directly with my possible sister. Oops, Pat turns out to be Patrick, and this is his real name. He was born in 1947, two years ahead of any possible sister and four years ahead of my brother Tim. So we're, we siblings are really dumbfounded, like, oh, my God. You know, why didn't Dad tell us this? When After Mom died, we had the big meeting. And, um, you know, I'm like, well, I think maybe because there, we'd already figured the math out. There was no shock value to it. I mean, how do you tell your children they decided to uh, give one of you up? And then my brother Tim says to me, well, maybe Dad didn't know. It's like, oh, my gosh. I never thought of that. And it turns out that Pat, according to his birth date, he had always figured out he was a New Year's Eve. Oops. 
And this kind of makes sense because my mother was 31, a dietitian in a community hospital in Geneva, New York. My dad, who had survived 26 bombing missions in World War II, um, was now at Cornell Law School on the GI Bill. He was at the other end of Cayuga Lake. And certainly they would have gone home for the holidays and having both served in the war, wanted to embrace life. It kind of made sense. Um, I also learned from uh, Pat's birth certificate that my mother gave birth uh, in what was called the Booth Memorial Home and Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. And she lived there for six weeks in a home identified as a home for ostracized women and unwed mothers. So this is, opens up a new chapter on my mother. But to get to Pat, Pat, he lets us know right away that he had a happy childhood. He always knew he was adopted. His parents made him feel special. But his only regret about childhood was that he was an only sibling, an only child. He always wanted a sibling. And he married a woman that was also an only child. And together, they have an only child. And guess what? Now they've got six aunts and uncles and eight first cousins, you know. Um, and we decide that we want to, um, it's best if just the siblings meet first. So just this last December, uh, the troll tribe goes down to our, our Ormond Beach, Florida to meet Pat. And he looks a lot like my brothers Tim and Ray, only with a lot more hair. And we end up having three days together where we share family dinners, we laugh, we look at similarities. And in heading to the airport, Pat uh, sends us all a message that says, three days ago, five strangers came into my life. Now they depart as loved ones. So from my, my family's secret oops to the oops of looking for a sister and finding a brother, it's been a fascinating and illuminating ride, and it's not over yet. Thank you. We have one more speaker tonight, Jim Fitzer. Jim has lived in eight different states and worked in nearly 30 states, but when he visited Juneau four years ago, he knew he'd found home. He moved to Juneau about a year ago and couldn't be happier to be here. He's here tonight to share a story he calls Wild Man. Jim, come on up. Karen took her foot off the gas, and the truck slowly limped to a stop on the side of the dirt Forest Service Road. I climbed out of the back seat and looked at the tire. It was completely flat. I crawled underneath to find the spare. Well, it was there, but it was padlocked to the truck. Karen, where's the key to the spare? I heard some jangling keys and a pause. Um, I, I think it's in the junk drawer in the kitchen in Phoenix. We were on the Kaibab Plateau near the north rim of Grand Canyon, 340 miles from the junk drawer in the kitchen in Phoenix. It was Karen, her boyfriend, John, my girlfriend, Christine, and I. We were headed to backpack the canyon. We had no choice at this point. The sun was setting. The tire was flat. We couldn't get to the spare, so we set up camp. 
We had dinner, went to bed. I woke up at midnight to the sound of a car coming down the Forest Service Road. I pulled myself out of my sleeping bag. I was still pulling my jeans on and tripping over them as I ran out of the middle of the road. My, my waist-length hair and nipple-length beard were both alive with the static from the nylon sleeping bag. I was bare-chested and barefoot, waving my arms at the approaching headlights. I can only imagine what kind of forest creature they thought I must have been. The little Toyota stopped about 30 yards before me, paused, and then began backing up. I waved my arms and I yelled, no, no, please, we need your help. It stopped again and crept forward. When it was right beside me, the passenger window came down about two inches. Through the two inches, I frantically told my story. All four doors flew open. Four gentlemen in their late 20s or early 30s sprung out, the driver proclaiming, have no fear, the Boy Scouts are here. <laughs> the trunk opened. And out of that Toyota trunk, a toolbox the size of a Volkswagen came. In an instant, the four of them had a tool of choice and were underneath the truck. I sat down on the side of the road with my three companions, and we heard clanking and banging and sawing. And soon, we heard the thud of a padlock, a broken padlock now, on the, the middle of the road. The tire slid out from under the truck. And I stood up, and I said, thank you so much. We can handle it from here. Sit back down, wild man, said the driver. This is a job for the Boy Scouts. I did as I was told, and soon the new tire was on, the old tire was secured underneath the truck. They went on their way. We went back to bed. The next morning, we drove the additional mile to the rim of the canyon, and off we went. It was 13 miles to get down to the Tepeach River camping area. Not too bad, we had all day to get there, but we soon found out that Christine's brand new hiking boots were ill-fit, a size too small. We had replaced them with a pair of Teva sandals on her bloodied and blackened toes, which wasn't a whole lot better for her. And by the time we got to the, the camping area, it was dark. We were hungry, we were tired, and we could not find a place to camp. There were tents lining the edge of the trail. As we stood there debating what to do, we heard a voice come from a nearby campfire. Is that you, wild man? <laughs> Before you know it, the Boy Scouts run staking their tents, pulling them closer together, making room for us to squeeze our two tents in around their fire. We set up that night with them, and the next two days were heaven. We hiked down to the Colorado River where we swam and we basked in the sun, and at night, we had clear skies with bright stars and a moon passing over, and I learned why they call the canyon the house of stone and light as those shadows danced off the canyon walls. After our second full day down there, the Boy Scouts said they were going to leave that evening after sunset, and, and they advised us to do the same. Wild man, it's going to be hot tomorrow, 110 degrees. It's going to take a lot of water to get out of the canyon. You should hike out with us tonight. We, we decided we'd rather sit up for a while, and we'd leave early in the morning. So we said goodbye to them, and we set our alarms for about 3 or 4 in the morning, got up, and headed out. We refilled our water bottles at the Thunder River Spring. 
And then off we went. But by 8, 39 o'clock in the morning, it was already well over 100 degrees. And as we paused to take a break, though nobody said it, I could tell we were all thinking the same thing. We don't have enough water to get out of here. Just as I thought that, I saw something white fluttering in the wind up ahead. It was a piece of paper stuck on a thorn of a tree. I, I, I walked up there and pulled the paper off, unfolded it, and read the following words. Take what you need, leave the rest. Compliments of the Boy Scouts. <laughs> I looked around, and then I saw it. Tucked back in some sagebrush was a gallon jug almost completely full of water. We filled up our bottles. I hung the empty jug on my pack, and off we went. We were out of the canyon by early afternoon. When we got up to our truck, John and I were throwing the backpacks into the bed, and I heard Karen say, what's that? I looked up, and she was reaching around to the windshield, pulling a piece of paper out from under the windshield wiper. She unfolded it and read the following words to us. Dear wild man, don't forget the motto, be prepared. Love the Boy Scouts. We climbed in the truck, and as we drove back out the Forest Service Road, headed back towards Phoenix, John looked at me from across the seat, and he said, hey, uh, wild man, you think we're too old to join the Boy Scouts? <laughs> yeah, John, I said, I'm pretty sure we're too old to join the Boy Scouts, but we're definitely not too old to learn from them. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on February 12, 2019 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was, oops. Live music was performed by Tom Loker. This program is a production of the Mudrooms Storyboard. Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Sarah Hannon, Melissa Griffiths, Jeff Smith, and David Noon. I'm Rich Moniak. Have a good night.